Welcome to Addressing Alaskans, where we feature community conversations around South Central Alaska. Join us on Alaska Public Media as we travel throughout our community and listen to local groups discuss what matters to them. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. I'm Ammon Swenson. Today's episode features a panel discussion celebrating International Women's Day with the next generation of Indigenous women leaders. This program was presented by the Alaska World Affairs Council. Links and more information can be found on alaskapublic.org. Alaska World Affairs Council President and CEO Lisa Christensen speaks next. As you all know, today is International Women's Day, and for those who are not familiar with the history of today, I thought I would just take just a few minutes here to talk about the history of International Women's Day. The Socialist Party of America first declared National Women's Day in 1909. It would be observed on the last Sunday of February until 1913. In 1910, at the second International Conference of Working Women, a gathering of women from activists and political organizations in Copenhagen, the idea of an International Women's Day was proposed and approved. The day would be observed for the first time the following year on March 19, 1911, in several European countries. The celebration included rallies and events calling for women's right to vote and an end to gender discrimination. March 8th has been the fixed date for International Women's Day since 1914, when the day was moved to be in line with the Russian women who celebrated this day on February 23rd on the Gregorian calendar. The United Nations first recognized International Women's Day in 1975. The UN announced the theme this year for International Women's Day as gender equality for a sustainable tomorrow. Gender equality is an issue of both human dignity and respect for greater global prosperity. Gender equality across education, health, politics, and economic participation is necessary for building more inclusive economies around the world. Sustainable development goals are not achievable if half of the world's population is not as involved as the other half. It is up to all leaders of government to create policies that provide talent development, diversify the leadership pool, and provide support to families and caregivers. The World Economic Forum releases this global gender gap index every year, and we post that on our website, measuring the extent of gender-based gaps among four key elements economic participation and opportunity, educational attainment, health and survival, and power, power empowerment. The 2022 or 2020 edition of the Global Gender Cap Index studied and ranked 153 countries around the world. Countries are ranked from having the highest gender equality to the least amount of gender equality. And the analysis of each country is intended to serve as the basis for designating effective measure, measures for reducing gender gaps. The top 10 countries for gender equality, once again, include the Nordic countries. Iceland tops out the list with Norway, Finland, and Sweden. One Latin American country, Nicaragua. One country from East Asia and the Pacific region, New Zealand. Three countries from West Europe, Ireland, Spain, and Germany. And one country from Sub-Saharan Africa, Rwanda. Iceland kept this number one spot in the 2020 edition for the 11th year in a row with Iceland closing almost 88% of its overall gender gap. While the US is not at the bottom of 153 countries joining Yemen, Iraq, Pakistan, Syria, we ranked 53rd, which is actually two points down from last year where we ranked 51. I have to admit, it's discouraging to see the United States 
below 52 other countries, including Serbia, Poland, Bolivia, Belarus, Zimbabwe. We're not much higher than Ukraine, which is at 59, and close to Russia at 81. The UK, for reference, stands at 21, and Canada at 19. There's also an informal movement going around for 2020 with International Women's Day with a the theme, Break the Bias. Women all over the world are crossing their, their arms and to strike an expose on social media to show solidarity over this theme. The theme, Break the Bias, spotlights the individual and collective biases against women that fuel gender inequality. The International Women's Day website reads, whether deliberate or unconscious, bias makes it difficult for women to move ahead. Knowing that bias exists isn't enough. Action is needed to level the playing field. We see this in the US with key pay discrepancies where women are now asking for pay raises at the same rate as men, but not receiving them at the same rate. And unfortunately, it's both men and women holding other women back and sometimes women doing this for their own self-interest, and this needs to stop. And at this time, I want to recognize for the Alaska World Affairs Council, I'm not sure if she's in here, but Siobhan Choi, you might have seen her when you came in. She works for the World Affairs Council. She's been with us for two and a half years, and it's women like Siobhan that make me super excited about what I do. She's honest, she's caring, she's got integrity. She defines integrity. She's passionate about the Alaska World Affairs Council, our mission, our vision, and especially our students. And she makes it possible to do what we do today. And I'm so proud to have her in my life as a friend and a colleague. And shout out to all the women in your life and in your workplace who make it possible for us to do the things we're doing. So big round of applause for Alaska World Affairs Council, Siobhan Choi. To celebrate Alaska Women's Day, the World Affairs Council has assembled some amazing women who are driving our state. It's the next generation of leaders to see what their vision is for the future. Unfortunately, Melissa Kokesh was not able to make it today, but not to worry, each of these impressive women could fill an hour all on their own. Our moderator, Hallie Bissett, will introduce and ask questions of our panelists today for about 30 minutes, and then we'll open up for questions from all of you, our audience. I'll be standing right down here uh, and holding the microphone. So during the Q&A, just come on up to me and you can ask a question directly of any of the people up on the stage here today. I encourage you to go on our website to see the full bios of these impressive, window, these impressive women. So take out your phones and take pictures. You'll see on your tables, cards, and how you can share that with social media. Tell folks you're celebrating International Women's Day with the Alaska World Affairs Council. But do please put it on to silent so that we don't disrupt the program. And if you need to take a phone call, you can do that out in the back. And now, over to you, board member of the Alaska World Affairs Council, Executive Director of Alaska Native Village Corporation Association, and our moderator today, Hallie Bissett. Ente chinan guninyu. Denaina Eshlana, my name is Hallie Bissett. Thank you for being here. I said, what's up? It's Ente, can all of you say that with me? Ente. 
Ente, what's up? All right, it's really good to see everybody in person today. It's our first back-in-person event, I believe, or uh, one of our first since um, COVID hit and impacted all of our lives. We're grateful to see you all here uh, smiling back at us. And um, it is my pleasure and my honor to be here today with these two women who I'm going to let introduce themselves. Um, but uh, what you should know is that each one of us represents a different area of Alaska. We are all indigenous women. Um, we've just celebrated a 50-year anniversary of a very important piece of legislation and in Indian policy, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act. Um, so we're going to be talking a little bit today about you know, what that means to each of us and what, what's coming next um, in terms of Native policy. But we're also going to talk a little bit about uh, the things that, that Lisa mentioned, gender equality and those sorts of things. I'm going to ask you, though, if you have questions, like Lisa mentioned, come on down and ask them, because we're going to just talk to amongst each other for about 30 minutes. But really, we want to have, you know, an interactive experience with all of you. Um, so we're going to go ahead and get started. I'm going to go first over to Dina, and I'm going to ask them both the same questions. Just, uh, introduce yourself, tell us where you're from, tell us who you're here representing today, and then if you could, um, tell us a little bit about the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act and how you first became aware of it um, and, and what it meant for you growing up, um, you know, being a, a child of or, or born after Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act of 1971. I will start with you, Dina. Thank you, Holly. Uh, as Holly and uh, Lisa mentioned, my name is Dina Summer Pettibone. I'm a Khoikhan Athabascan. My father's family is from Nulato, which is on the Yukon River, about 300 miles west of Fairbanks. I represent uh, today Gunnayu Limited, where I'm the CEO. I've been there for four years. Gunnayu is an Alaska Native village corporation. Gunnayu means friends or friends together, and that was the underlying sentiment when four villages joined uh, back in 1978 to form the corporation. The four villages that we, um, that basically our shareholders come from are Galena, Kaikuk, Nulato, and Caltag. Uh, it's unique to have four villages uh, together in one corporation. Uh, we have about 1,300 shareholders. We're looking to change that through open enrollment, which I will talk a little bit more about because really, when you talk about ANSCA the last 50 years and ANSCA the next 50 years, open enrollment is critical. I'd like to point out that I drug my 18-year-old daughter who's on spring break here with me because I feel like it's important for her. She's in the back corner over there. I think it's really important for her to hear what is open enrollment and what will this do. She's not a shareholder. She's not, she doesn't have the blood quantum to necessarily be enrolled under open enrollment. So gifting and inheritance is critical uh, for the next 50 years, in addition to opening enrollment. Um, I grew up in Fairbanks, spent a lot of time on the Yukon and in Nulato. Uh, I, I lost track of all the things you want me to say. <laughs> Okay, thanks. My first experience with ANSCA, I am a Doyon shareholder. Doyon is the Alaska Native Corporation for the Interior of Alaska. It has the largest land base. Uh, the land base is based on the people of the interior being nomadic people and really traveling that whole piece of piece of land. I can't tell you ex the exact uh, millions of acres that Doyon has, but I am a born after 1971. I'm aging myself. So the, we were not the original shareholders of, Anch of ANCSCA. 
Doyon opened enrollment for the first time in about 91 or 92, and that's when, if you met certain criteria, you could enroll into what was called Class C stock. So my first recollection of ANSCA was about that time when I was getting ready to look at colleges, look at funding opportunities, and then all of a sudden, whoa, here, now I'm becoming a Doyon shareholder. So that was back in 91 would be my first recollection of what ANSCA was. Just to piggyback on that, uh, I mentioned that I'm, my, I'm with Gunny U Limited, which is a village corporation. And to be honest, because I was not a shareholder or a descendant and not necessarily, um, this was before social media and email, electronic communication, I didn't even know that Gunny you probably could have given me a scholarship back then. Uh, I just didn't have that. And I think that's, as we talk more in the next 50 years, getting, getting the younger generation more involved in understanding the benefits and, and how important ANSCA has been for Alaska Native people. And, and just real quick for clarification, for many of you that may not know, um, that cutoff date we're talking about, December 18th, 1971. You had to be born on or before December 18th, 1971 in order to be included, gifted. Uh, you were given 100 shares of stock in your regional corporation, and you could enroll in your village corporation as well. You had to be one quarter blood quantum of Alaska Native or Eskimo, as they called it back then. And if you were not, you were not included. Now, there's six regional corporations that have included people that were born after that date. Doyon is one of them, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. I just wanted to clarify before we're going to turn it over to Marit, and she's going to introduce herself to you. To my everyone, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to, to share the stage with these women and also to share lunch and this time with you today as well. My name is Marit Carlson Van Dort. I'm Sukpiak from the Alaska T Peninsula village of Chignik Bay. It's um, in the Bristol Bay region on the southern end of the Alaska Peninsula on the Gulf side. Um, and I grew up there in the summer times um, practicing a subsistence way of lifestyle with my family and also commercial salmon seining. Um, I started fishing on my grandfather's boat when I was about 12 years old and um, finally hung up my rain gear and boots when I was just approaching 30 and, and getting a mortgage. Um, <laughs> that was the impetus. I kind of needed um, reliable income at that point. Um, so uh, I also grew up in Juneau in the winter times. That's where I went to school. Um, my family, uh, my grandparents are Alva and Axel Carlson from Chignik Bay. My mother is Phyllis Carlson from Chignik Bay and Kodiak. And my father is Jan Van Dort from Wisconsin. So um, I find that there's a lot of um, nexus between Wisconsin and Alaska, which is kind of cool also. And um, I went to the University of Wisconsin there uh, where I studied um, conservation biology and um, was a student of a lot of um, Aldo Leopold's and um, his naturalist and conservation principles that he really founded um, at that university. Um, so I didn't really know very much about, um, I should also say that the Village Corporation that I work for um, is Far West Inc. That's all the Village Corporation for Chignik Bay. Um, it was only in the last year that I have accepted the role as chief executive officer, but I've served on that board of directors for over 15 years. Um, but it really wasn't until I was about the same, same time as you, about graduating from high school, 17, 18 years old, and looking for scholarship opportunities to help pay for my, um, my education that I became aware of what it meant to be a shareholder 
um, and I'm still learning what it means to be a shareholder, frankly, but, um, but that I had these um, opportunities through these corporations. And, um, and why did I have those opportunities through the corporations? And I was fortunate enough that my grandfather was generous to have gifted us shares in Bristol Bay Native Corporation and in Far West. Um, at the time, Bristol Bay obviously was, was much bigger. Far West was really small wasn't doing a lot operationally, and I really didn't know very much about the Village Corporation at all until I came back and then was sort of recruited or um, was asked to see if I was interested in running for the board. Um, and I walked into that experience kind of not knowing anything, um, you know, but I was curious, and I was very curious about what is ANCSA, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, why is it so unique, how does it apply to my village, um, and how is it that we are um, eligible for these benefits through these corporations and what does that mean? You know, you hear the word tribes and ANCs and Alaskan Native Corporations and that was something that I was really interested in learning more about at the time. You know, I'm not sure if you realize it, but uh, we're all from such very different regions, all of which have a quite unique history. Um, in terms of how they became uh, citizens of Alaska and who they were imp impacted by first. Um, I think, you know, I think I want to move over to um, talking about how our entities work together and how they are contributing to the community. But first, I want to tell you a little story that I tell everybody. Um, does everybody in the audience know what the business roundtable is? It's a, it's a group of Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies. They get together quarterly. You know, they, it's a big, powerful group of businesses. Well, a couple years back, they were all patting themselves on the back for, you know, they were going to decide amongst themselves that we're going to give 1% of all of our net profits back to the community. Well, I got to tell you, we think that's just adorable. Um, Alaska Native corporations, on average, give back 30% or more of their net income back to the community. And I'm going to turn it over first to Marit to talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how is that going on in your community? What kinds of things does your village corporation and your regional corporation do for its shareholders? So we are finally at a point now, um, only because we've been able to develop alternative sources of revenue from the ANSCA sharing model, uh, resource revenue sharing model, um, to be able to provide um, additional opportunities. So at the time, and I will easily be corrected if <laughs> jump in. So my understanding is that at the time that ANSCA was being negotiated, that there was a recognition that there were going to be sort of winners and losers in the regions in terms of where they were, the boundaries were drawn and what subsurface um, and surface uh, natural resources might, might be available for development. You know, obviously the oil, the oil and gas is located in the North Slope. The Nana region has a tremendous mineral wealth. Southeast had timber. Um, so in order to sort of even some of that out and also to build support for the passage amongst Alaska Natives themselves of this, um, of this law, of this legislation, they needed to find a way to sort of even the playing field and share in the development wealth that would potentially come under the, under the new legislation. So the regional corporations, any, any resource revenue that's derived from the development of natural resources, surface or subsurface, um, primarily subsurface though, 70% um, of that needs to be shared um, amongst 
all of the regional corporations of which there are 12 and then a 13th um, for folks that were not in state at the time and didn't have lands. And, um, and then once that 70% that was distributed amongst the regionals, up to 50% of that could be distributed to the village corporations within those regions. So you're talking revenue sharing that's highly dependent upon commodities prices, upon the infrastructure to be able to develop those resources in the first place, and the burden shouldered by some of the, by some of the regional corporations who really undertook the liability, the polit political, amongst other things, liabilities of developing these resources. Um, and I would, you know, largely that's been ASRC um, recently and the Nana region with the Red Dog Mine. Um, so all of that, re those resources get shared amongst the village corporations. And for many of us, um, for a long time, that was the only income that our, that our corporations had. And so we were really challenged to try and figure out a way to develop alternative sources of revenue and diversify within our corporations um, so that we can provide the benefits that we really want to under our missions and vision and value statements in the corporation. Um, so, I don't, so how do we give back to the community? So only recently um, have we been able to sort of have those conversations about how we can um, really give back to the community in alternative ways besides just a state straight dividend or distribution. Um, and the way that our corporation has worked really hard to diversify our income, and we're still working on that, is through federal contracting. And that's been one avenue that we've been um, successful thus far at sort of working to use sort of move away from the dependence on, on 7J. So we do straight distributions, but we're also looking at infrastructure. And one of the things that we're really challenged with is how do we develop opportunities, economic opportunities, businesses in our communities in rural Alaska, given um, the lack of infrastructure and also the lack of human resources um, as we're seeing sort of migrations into urban Alaska from many of our rural communities. You know. Um such a good story to hear you know they're they're getting finally and it's 50 years later and you know what you're never going to meet a uh, 20 something uh, multi-billionaire okay there's some unicorns out there but typically entrepreneurs they don't get really successful till around 40 or 50 years old and that's because we've tried a bunch of things right we've tried we've failed we've done all kinds of different um, ideas and and we learn what really works and I think the same is going to be true of our village corporations this woman over to the right of me here though as a as a great story They've actually diversified quite a long time ago. And I wonder, Dina, if you would talk about, um, and, and I'm going to just uh, toot her horn for her a little bit. Uh, just last year, they were shown up for the first time on one of the top 49er lists. That's like the biggest businesses in Alaska. And it's only funny if Kim's in the room for the regional association, but there's 13 villages on that list now instead of 12 regional corporations are on there too. But um, the villages are, are a really great story. I wonder, Dina, if you could talk about you know how you guys have diversified and what that's meant in terms terms of reversing that economic model we're used to, that extraction, take your profits home versus, you know, being from these small villages, going outside and bringing all of that resource back to your people. Thank you, Hallie. Yes, so I think the, the one message I'd have to say is, and, and I really like that an analogy of being 40 to 50, the pre-work to get to the place where we are able to say that we could be on that top 49 is years ago, but it precedes me. Uh, 
it, it took leaders back then to really understand what direction they needed to go and what they wanted to do. Uh, one of the things that I want to point out with this, the 7I and the 7J money, the natural resource revenue, our board of directors recognized several years ago that we could not be reliant on that, that it was going to get smaller and that we had to really look at diversifying our revenue streams using what we could with federal contracting uh, because we couldn't rely on that and they didn't want to rely on it. They wanted to, to have a sustainable operating business. Um, so in recent years, with our growth, we've been able to contribute to each of our four village schools. Uh, two of our village schools don't have high school. The, the, the youth in those communities have to go to a boarding school or go to a sister or neighboring village. Um, I think about Caltech, where some of the kids have to go 30 miles up the river to Nulato to go to high school and commute, basically, for school. And so the last three years, we've been able to give each of our four schools $25,000 each to really build their programs, cultural programs, um, materials, things. I know the, the school in Galena has actually been building a new theater with the funding that we've given them. So diversification is key. Uh, sustainability, federal, federal contracting, um, some would argue about the stability of it. It comes and goes. There's been different things in the news lately. It changes with different administrations. So really be able to have a solid base and figure out what that looks like and know that you have that and then and then taking advantage of the other contracting vehicles out there. Did I get everything, Holly? Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I do want to hit on this whole gender equality um, topic before we, we open it up for questions, which is soon. I hope you have some out there, because I, you know, we uh, we don't have the clinket up here, but you got an Athabascan or two, and we're worse than them when you give us microphones, so. <laughs> um, you know, I think in my career, I've certainly uh, witnessed and experienced, um, you know, the, the pay gap and all of these things, especially when you work in the contracting department about what, what men and what women get paid and these sorts of things, and I wonder, um, you know, we'll ask a quick question about, you know, your experience in the workforce with that. And do you think it's 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 worse or better when working for a native corporation or is it about the same thing that we all experience out there with uh, gender equality and pay? Uh, this is a very sensitive subject. Uh, I actually saw something in Harvard Business Review the other day. Uh, an email came across that the the pay gap has actually worsened at the executive level between men and women over the pandemic, the course of the pandemic. I don't know the, I don't have specific numbers or anything. I know uh, the Alaska Native Village Corporation Association actually just recently did some benchmarking. So I'm very anxious to see what comes out from that. But uh, Alaska Native Corporations do have to, if you're over a certain size, do have to file with the Department of Revenue, file your annual reports and your earnings. And I, I will just put it out there this way that I, I can see what similarly sized ANCs who may have perhaps a male CEO versus a female. I can, I, those differences are very visible. Um, again, I'm very anxious to see what the results of this benchmarking survey um, have to share. But it's just something to be aware of, I think, really, uh, and, and help educate uh, board members on because I don't even know that that board members necessarily know that those differences are out there. And 
Mara, you've gotten, I mean, listening to your background, you've kind of participated in a lot of male-dominated, uh, you know, places in terms of, you know, commercial fishing and, and even your service on the, the fish fisheries board. So tell us a little bit about your experiences in terms of, you know, are people being treated equally and paid equally? Well, in the in the corporate sphere, I would echo all the all the comments that Jana made for sure. Um, in you know, in government and in public policy, um, and with my role on the board of fisheries, um, I'm the first female to ever be elected to chair the Alaska Board of Fisheries, and that thank you. That's since the '70s. Now there have been women that have served on the board, but none have led that, and I find that um, illustrative in and of itself. Um, now, you know, I think that things are progressing. I'm really excited to see um, more women participating in the fishing industry. I think that's incredible. I love to see women skippers, all female boats. We can do it. Um, it's, you know, just finding our way. But I will say that my experience in service on the board is that sometimes I do feel like I have been treated a little bit differently and not negatively necessarily, but sometimes those really male uber dominated um, conversations around allocative issues that can get really, really passionate at those board meetings. Not quite sure how they, they some, some of them don't quite know how to approach or interact with me as a female, because it's a little bit tougher to scream in my face. Um, maybe, maybe not. Some of them, <laughs> but um, uh, so I mean, you know, that's that's some of the dynamic that the Board of Fisheries I think has been sort of notorious for over the over the years. Not so much anymore, and certainly less in my experience. But um, you know, those those they're very difficult conversations, very high stakes conversations and deci decisions that are being made. And um, and I'm really encouraged to also be able to serve on that board with another woman, um, Mackenzie Mitchell out of Fairbanks. Um, so I just love to see um, women being included in that at that policy development level. Um, it's, uh, I think we bring a different perspective uh, to those discussions, um, especially when you're talking about providing for, um, for families and feeding families. You know, um, we talk about like Alaska and, and the precipice, the things that led up to the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act being, you know, the pipeline, this giant pipeline that needed to be built. Um, we have kind of a similar scenario almost exactly with this broadband money that's coming in, infrastructure money, multi-trillion dollar bills of infrastructure money um, that is going to be flowing into the state of Alaska in the next couple of years. And I want to start... Um, you know, we'll start with Dina. You know, what what comes to mind? I mean, yeah, we're getting asked now, like, what are your shovel-ready projects? That went, there's, you know, trillions of dollars, and if you could just access one of those grant programs, Dina, what would your community do with it? Thanks, Holly. So each community is different. I mean, you, we look at, you know, where one of our villages still is looking to uh, build or dig wells so that they could have more access to running water Others need better water and resources, and and then the different sizes of the communities have different um, are able to to plan and do things differently. We are Gunnyu Limited did apply for a broadband grant through NTIA. Uh, we're still waiting to hear on that, but that would ultimately 
be life-changing to some of our communities that still don't even have or very limited Wi-Fi and internet service. Um, being able to do telehealth, uh, better access to that, better access to school systems. Um, I, I would say if you would shovel ready, it would be the broadband. Being the middle, the, the middle section of the Yukon, it's a it's a three um, three ANC collaborative uh, application to get broadband throughout the interior of Alaska higher speeds better to to really grow programs and our board actually this past year uh updated our vision statement to envision shareholders are ha are successful on their own terms we're seeing shareholders that want to stay home they don't necessarily want to come to anchorage this would really allow for them to stay home and still have great access to schools and health care through through the uh, ultimate better connectivity Man, <laughs> I mean, that's we've experienced that also in our region um, where, you know, the lack of infrastructure has sort of driven people out of the village by necessity. And so having these potential, you know, infrastructure available through, you know, being able to telehealth, teleeducate, all of those things um, might might inspire or allow people to move back home where I think a lot of them would like to be ultimately. Um, I will say this, the term shovel ready, kind of, I cringe when I hear that because I have issues with that. And the reason it irks me is because it kicks many of the smallest communities into a negative feedback loop where you're never eligible for those dollars because you need to have the capabilities to do the engineering, to do the surveying, to do all of that work. And if you don't have that capacity in those small communities that need that infrastructure the most, you never get access to the dollars. So the federal government you know, can pat itself on the back all day long, or the state for whomever, the government, about we're making all of these resources available. But it's really a limited few that are able to access that funds because they have you know, the, like I said, the capacity to be able to fill out the grants properly and, you know, plan the project and all of those things that they can then turn in and say, hey, we're ready. Um, and so I would like to see, you know, more resources focused on capacity development in these small communities so that we can then start to access um, the, the, the resources available to, to build um, and then run and maintain um, the infrastructure that we so desperately need. Maybe you could uh, build on that a little bit more and talk about the capacity in your village. I mean, our, before the show started, we were kind of chatting a little bit about, you know, we're rising prices, you know, we're all experiencing inflation here in Anchorage. And I asked her, what's that going like out in your village? And she had just some really interesting answers about what they even have out there. So um, our region, especially, but the community that I grew up in in the summers is really, um, really subject to the boom and bust of salmon prices in the salmon industry. And the last few years, um, they have uh, experienced, you know, disaster after disaster after disaster after disaster of salmon run returns, where they have, um, in some cases, not been able to commercially fish at all. Um, and in some cases, very, very, very limited openers, which has a tremendous effect on the entire economy. You know, the city budget um, isn't sustainable because they're not you know, getting any fish taxes, um, processor moving out of the area, all of those things. At one time, it was a pretty robust and vibrant area um, because of 
the amazing salmon runs that would come through and that people were able to, um, to harvest on. Um, but because of the, the downturn in the salmon um, returning, uh, it's really had a negative effect. And there is no store in our village. We have a seasonal store that is open if the cannery chooses to open it for two months out of the year. The rest of it is de dependent upon um, shipping things in, either via air, which is incredibly expensive, or through freight or through the ferry. And um, the ferry service has been cut significantly. That is one way that people get their vehicles home, that they come home um, to try and participate in the fishing industry or practice their subsistence. Um, so all of these things have been really impactful in terms of what we have available to us um, in the village. So, you know, you're hitting on something that I want to also highlight. I'm going to ask Dina the same question, but in a little bit different way. Yeah, we've all just gone through, um, you know, I think we're, we could all agree we're kind of getting sick of living through historic moments, right? Um, COVID, I mean, impacted our state. Uh, I think one of four states that actually had a 40% decline in the economy, and that was because of the price of, of commodities. And you just heard earlier, um, you know, 70 to 90% of the revenue that two-thirds of my villages depend on to even operate are also tied to those same commodities. So 40% decline in, in the regular operating revenues for a village corporation. Um, we went through a huge Supreme Court case that had to do with recognition and whether or not uh, you know corporations should be included or not and, and the differences between a tribe and a corporation. One of those differences is tribes typically in their constitutions have, uh, you know, it's, it, they can only serve people that live in the village, right? And so um, the corporations have the, well, also the records to be able to push out money pretty quickly. And so I want to ask Dina, you know, if you could hit on that, like what was the, you know, the villages in particular got the least amount of funding uh, being, having been left out of ARPA and, and um, you know, being, um, I guess, formulaed out of the bigger dollars. Um, I think the communities that needed the most help uh, got the least amount of assistance. And can you talk a little bit about that in terms of what happened in your four villages? I think first I'd like to just say how, how, how well a lot of Alaska's rural communities did at keeping COVID out. They, the precautions that were taken so immediately um, after the pandemic were great, but it also the supply chain issues really were had a heavy impact. You have to I have to apologize. I was looking reading my watch because I just had my assistant send me half a gallon of milk in one of our villages right now is ten dollars. Ten dollars for a half a gallon of milk. Fuel, she said, is six ninety five, but they know that it's going up soon because of the recent changes. So I to, to talk back to what Holly was saying about not enough resources getting out there. Um, we were very fortunate to be successful in that court case, and, and corporations eventually did get their, their piece of CARES money, but it came almost two years after things started getting, or things were bad. And so being able to send supplies and resources, it was something that we were looking at um, without the funding at the time. Uh, and then um, just getting people out for health care uh, due to weather and things like that. So... Um, it, it was a huge impact. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think it hits on those topics. We are around uh, right around the time where we're ready for questions from the audience. So if you guys want to come on up and ask a question, you're totally able to do that. Um, you know, just keeping in what Dina was saying, though, is, you know, 80% of our state is not accessible by road. And when one of your only passenger, one of the only passenger flights and, and freight flights goes out of business, I mean, that's a huge impact. And so we're having people that were going out and actually having to charter airlines just to get regular diabetes medication out to their villages. And we're looking forward to some of your questions out there from the audience. And stop stalling. Wonderful. Okay. Thank you. Um, I'm really enjoying this. Thank you so much for the opportunity to learn more. Um, I know the permafrost is melting, and I recently learned there are methane sinkholes in Alaska, but I wonder how involved the native corporations are in climate change and what the impacts are on subsistence living or your way of life. And um, is there a particular impact on women? I'm really glad you answered that question, or asked that question. It's one of my favorite to cover. Um, in terms of, of climate change, we are on at ground zero here in Alaska. There's a lot of villages that even uh, are going to have to move because they're so at risk of, of their whole, um, you know, wastewater lagoon is on the on the beach there, and it's it's not it's going to just take one flood and everything is gone. Um, but outside of that, the federal government, as part of the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, actually gave us about 1,100 contaminated sites that were contaminated by you know the Department of Defense during World War II and the Cold. War and, and other wars and, um, you know, nasty stuff out there as well. Uh, PCBs, there's methane, unplugged wells, all that sort of thing. Um, and the really unfortunate and sad part about that that I have to tell you is the Biden administration completely left us out of all the cleanup funding that was put into the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They've said that only reservation lands can get cleanup dollars, and that's uh, that means not us. Um, so uh, as we will continue to advocate on those issues, um, I've had little ladies tell me there's, you know, they're hanging up their fish, going inside to use the uh, facilities, coming back out, and their fish is literally glowing in the dark. Um, or they have this squishy little gray substance of, in their fish, and they're just burying it, hope they don't see it again. So, yes, we see uh, over 100 sites that were orphaned, which means that they weren't even planning on cleaning them up. Those are all within two miles of a village, poisoning our drinking water, poisoning our subsistence resources. Um, so, yeah, we're, we're, we're at ground zero. The villages, the regional corporations, all of us received um, lands that were contaminated um, and then subsequently left out of any kind of super fun cleanup sites that were created in the last year. So, go talk to Biden. I would just add one thing to that. Uh, I heard mentioning salmon. Um, on the Yukon, being able to subsistence hunt and fish is, is, detriment, is, is just critical to our traditions, our culture, our, um, our health. And the last two summers, just based on the low salmon runs, that has just been impacted so much. Our families, our, our people who've grown up doing that have not been able to do that. Yep. Um, so, I mean, obviously, there's there's things that are happening in our ocean that we don't understand and that we need to start to begin to understand. And only recently, I think, has there been some of the research dollars that have been 
um, directed towards trying to understand what these impacts of global warming and rising ocean temperatures have on the, the resources that we depend on to eat and to live. Um, and, you know, from, from my perspective, um, the, there's nothing like a crisis that'll bring people together, right? Um, or bring people to the table um, to start addressing some of the issues. And we're starting to see that in, um, in the Southern Peninsula area, it's certainly in the AYK. Um, and, you know, from a policymaker perspective, we're, we can only make decisions as good as the information that we have available to us to base those decisions on. So moving forward, one of the things that I would really like to see are more opportunities for indigenous knowledge, local knowledge, local and traditional knowledge being brought to the Board of Fisheries table to understand what they're seeing because there's nothing like boots on the ground to portend what's coming um, down the way. Um, in addition to that, I would like to see a lot more collaborative work being done between entities in terms of being able to uh, conduct the research that's necessary to understand or to start to understand what's happening. So um, can we collaborate? And I think it's starting to happen. You know, the state of Alaska with, um, with, with NOAA, um, how do we bring in our universities into, um, you know, helping to conduct some of the research that we need to make these decisions that affect people, um, whether that's through the University of Alaska system or reaching down to the University of Washington, which does a tremendous amount of salmon research. Um, these are the types of partnerships that I would like to see going forward. But first and foremost, I would like to see um, the, uh, I would really benefit from um, the access to that local and traditional knowledge, um, especially as it relates to our fisheries resources. Super happy she's the chair of the Board of Fisheries, aren't you? All right, next question. Yeah. Um, hi, um, I really appreciate you coming here and sharing with us. I, it's very helpful to see Native and Indigenous women leading a change. I think it's from us, women, Indigenous women, that our communities will change. And saying that, my name is Itzel Zagal. I'm an Indigenous from Mexico. I'm here studying a PhD in Indian Studies, and my question is regarding how to decolonize uh, the, the Native Alaska Native corporations, because there is a disconnect between the business activity, what these corporations are doing, investing on, and the stakeholders, what they know about that. And I'm saying it because the Bering Strait uh, corporations and many other Native corporations since 2015 have been investing in homeland security, value at $235 million. Actually, just last year, they, uh, the word was $1 billion on detention immigration centers, where many indigenous uh, children from not only Mexico, but you know, all over Latin America have been dying. Uh, they say they're children, but in, in reality, we look at every specific case, they're indigenous children, and there's family separation that's been reported, sexual assaults, medical neglect, child detention, family separation, many things that actually resemble to um, what now we know were the practice in boarding schools that were inflicted in Alaska Native communities. So my question is that, how do, how do we do uh, business in a decolonized way where we connect the activities from these corporations to, um, to the values of the community, because from what I have learned, uh, Native communities have 
tremendous wisdom, resilience, and um, community values. And um, so I just kind of want to ask if you see that as a possibility, and how can we, um, you know, see that native corporations stop investing in family separation and child detention centers? Thank you. I'm really glad you asked that question. Uh, I just want to point out a couple things. Um, you're, you're mentioning uh, contracts with, with um, ICE detention centers that might be held by a native corporation that does business with the Department of Defense. Um, I do know there are a few of those. Um, I do know the few that I do know about are not actively participating in those detention centers that are holding children. Um, we've verified that several times. We've seen newspaper articles about that. We made sure we went back and um, checked in with those folks. Um, but just in, in particular, I know uh, at one of our, our one of our meetings at the foundation level, we were talking about, um, you know, the type of investments that you're going to make, socially responsible investments, as you know, we call them. And yeah, I mean, there there are definitely choices that you can make to go toward more socially responsible investments. Every investment that a native corporation makes, though, however, is going to go back into um, supporting programs for indigenous people. Um, I want to point out another thing that I think you touched on is, you know, the the millions of dollars that go into native communities, or or what it looks like, millions and billions of dollars for from government contracting um, and where do those dollars go people ask that a lot so I want to address that you know one of the things is, is those government contracts are agencies staff type contracts they they generate about two percent of what the revenue you see there in net profits two to three percent if you're lucky um, and I can tell you that many of us do incorporate our native values every single one of my village corporations and every regional corporation if you read their mission statement you're going to see something about protecting the culture you're going to see something about protecting the lands um, I'm going to ask my the other ladies here if they want to jump in and, and address this question as well um, but you know, it's 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 absolutely integral to everything we do, our native values, and and how we go about um, uh, impacting people, and what we do invest in does matter. Um, and go ahead, Dina. It looks like you had something you wanted to. Uh, just the the comment on um, protecting our past, leading our future. Uh, board members and shareholders are visionary. They want it. They want to see sustained, you know, economic growth in our communities. But they traditions and protecting the past are critical. Uh, the last couple of years, we've been really focused on trespass mitigation. Uh, my village, my corporation is very fortunate to have a large amount of land, but to protect that land and keep. Uh, illegal hunting off of those lands so that the, the animals can be used for us for our tradition. So a tradition focus, I, I can't speak like Holly for every native corporation, but I know it's it's near and dear to, to my corporation. That was an incredible question and there's a lot going on there. And I think there's an, there needs to be kind of, you know, protecting the past, but an acknowledgement of what happened. Um, and then how do we, um, how do we make sound investments that are responsible, you know, to our fiduciary duties, but also socially? And that's part of the mission of Alaska Native Corporations, um, at least at, at the corporation that I work at. Um, and it's also part of the need for education, um, all the way from 
our you know, local Alaska to you know the, the shareholder in the village all the way to the president of the United States and the halls of Congress, um, explaining the difference of, um, of Alaska Native corporations and that social responsibility requirement that is um, built into our corporate missions, our visions, and our values. Uh, just one more tidbit. Not only is it built into all of it, but we're actually required by Congress to provide for our people's social, cultural, and um, economic well-being in perpetuity. We have to do it forever. Um, it's in the law. And so that's you're going to see a lot of benefits coming out of the investments. And then just one more thing on on the investments is we absolutely look for the ones that are socially responsible. Uh, we've got wind farms that we invest in all over the world. It just, just depends on, um, you know, uh, what's out there, and we I can tell you that a lot of native corporations tend to go towards those most soci socially uh, valuable ones. That's that's a really good um, question because we're hearing from our young people that they're really concerned about you know, our next generation folks, climate, social responsibility, and inclusivity, and um, equality. So my question is for you guys as Alaska Native Indigenous leaders. Do you see any of those themes as a future driver for um, Alaska? Absolutely. You know, um, and I'll hand it over to Marit next, and then we'll go back to Dina. Um, for, for us at AMVCA, one of the things we're working on is, is more opportunity for um, agricultural project uh, products, um, you know, here in Alaska. We want opportunities for our villages and these long-term infrastructure deals that are being put together. Uh, a broadband cable, that's a pretty good asset, even though it doesn't throw off a really high percentage of profits. It's long-term, it's got a 20-year life, and it, it throws off cash every single year. So those, like, long-term investments, they look really good to us. Um, you know, I think that uh, as we're going... For, <laughs> Climate. Yeah. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about instead of oil and gas, there's uh, carbon credit opportunities. That's one of the big areas that we're looking at. And, you know, right now in, in California Air Resources Board, they opened up an opportunity for Alaskans to participate in only just this little part of Alaska down here. So, like the Chugach region, the Siri region, and Sea Alaska region, where we can actually make money by being part of the carbon credit cap and, sh and trade program. Okay, so that's, that's just in California. And over 50% of those projects were actually tribes, tribal lands, not just in Alaska, but all over the United States. So the ability to generate cash flow that way um, with, a, with not a conservation easement that restricts us for, for forever for re, um, doing any kind of resource development. But what we like about the Air Resources Board is it allowed you to have uh, some uh, resource extraction activity as long as you were replacing it as you went along in terms of like cutting down trees. So you see uh, commitments from Sea Alaska, for instance, where they're saying we're no longer going to be in the timber industry. In fact, this carbon credit program looks pretty valuable to us. And so, um, you know, we would love to see the whole state of Alaska open up to our, We're 44 million acres of land. We're largest landowners in the United States, if not the world. And so opportunities to conserve and be part of the carbon cap uh, market is, is a huge opportunity. Uh, and on top of that, our number one, our number two, and our number three exports to Asia are food. Um, so what, what, what can we be doing? It might be small, uh, you know, Alaskan-only, high-priced, you know, meats that are coming out of here, but what could we do there? We've also got this fledgling peonies market that are, you know, the little microclimates and villages makes a lot of sense for us to export 
flowers when we're the only state in the whole world that can grow peonies in the, the wedding season of June. So, you know, like for the future, there's all kinds of things that have nothing to do with resource extraction that I get excited about. So what about you, Marit? Well, I was just thinking about like, how do we, you know, she said that this is some of the younger generation priorities. Well, how do we incorporate that into the boardroom and into the management of the company? And one of the things that we're challenged by is, is recruiting younger generations and folks into service on these boards and, um, and, and coming to work at the corporation and learning about it and, um, and hopefully, you know, working up into um, the executive positions and management positions. But I would love, love, love to see um, increased interest of uh, the younger generation into service on these boards because some of the folks, with all respect, are getting a little long in the tooth. So I'd like to see I'd like to see uh, more folks, um, uh, you know, younger generation, um, bringing some of those priorities and values into the boardroom. <laughs> I just have to, I mentioned open enrollment, and I, I have this, I, I did a presentation to actually the regional chairs, um, all of the village, uh, the regional corporations, it was at Alaska, uh, UAA Public Policy. But when I got this position as CEO for my village corporation, I was a descendant. I did not have any shares of the corporation. I could become the CEO, but I could not be on the board of directors. So just to piggyback on what Mart is saying, I mean, yes, we need we need we need the younger shareholders. We need to gift and open enrollment and allow them and get them on these boards because these boards make decisions about land and they make decisions about where we want to invest and things like that. So her story just reminded me of being a CEO but not a board member. Big round of applause for our speakers today. It gives me a lot of excitement and hope to see our next generation of Alaska Native Indigenous leaders talking about the future and your vision. And thank you to KTUU and Alaska Public Media for coming out to share their words with the rest of the community. Uh, thank you all. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for joining us today for Addressing Alaskans. You can find links, more information, and content on the Addressing Alaskans page on alaskapublic.org. I'm Ammon Swinson. Thanks for listening. Addressing Alaskans is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Theme music is by Patrick Lee. The views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and do not reflect KSKA or its underwriters. To let us know about an upcoming community event that you would like to hear on Addressing Alaskans, go to our website at alaskapublic.org and click on Contact Us at the bottom of the page. Life Informed, this is Alaska Public Media.